that it is the feast day of St. George the Dragon Slayer. So we wish him a happy feast day. St. George did exist, and the dragon was slain. His talk tonight will be on Pope Benedict XVI and the future of the Catholic Church. Let's give him a warm Christendom welcome. Mr. George White. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell, ladies and gentlemen. In case there's anyone here from Bucharest, I should report that the Romanian edition of Witness to Hope is also in the works. It's great to be back with you after five years or so. I was trying to think walking over here tonight who said it. It was a famous scientist, but I can't recall the name, who said of his travels from one academic appointment to another, I like to be in the places where the future is being brewed. That's why I like to come to Christendom College. The future is being brewed here. The future of Catholic higher education, in which you are a model. The future of a renewed American culture, so important to the renewal of American democracy and the defense of freedom in the world. And I commend all of you, members of the board, administration, faculty, and students who have the good sense to come here and get a real education here for helping brew the future in a very distinctively Catholic and learned way. Pope Benedict XVI recently caused something of a flap by being mildly critical of the fact that Bob Dylan had been invited to be the setup man for John Paul II once at a Eucharistic Congress in Bologna, perhaps to bridge my work on John Paul II and the topic of my talk tonight, I can tell you something about my memory of that event. It was the fall of 1997. I was in Rome working on Witness to Hope, and I heard this rather astonishing story that some bright bulb in the Italian Bishops' Conference had gotten the idea that to conclude their National Eucharistic Congress in Bologna, which John Paul II was going to come up and give the closing address, that the setup man, as they say in the music business, should be Bob Dylan. So I am seated in front of the television set of the faculty room at the Pontifical North American College, Watching this incredible business unfold, the Pope has been helicoptered up, Dylan comes out, floppy hat, guitar, the whole bit, does three or four songs, concludes with blowing in the wind. John Paul II, who in those days still, as we say, had game, um, tossed his text, immediately picked up on blowing in the wind, started talking about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church, and rescued the situation. The very next night, 24 hours later, 
I was having dinner with the Pope. We did the work on the book over meals. There were just three of us at the table, the Holy Father, his secretary, and me. He had said grace. I had not even gotten into my chair when he looked at me across the table and said in that inimitable voice, Who is Bob Dillard? aggravation of my middle child and younger daughter, Monica. <laughs> Holy Father, think of him as a guy whose songs always sound better when somebody else sings. <laughs> I shall have to talk to the present pontiff about this someday. It really seems unbelievable that it has been two full years since the stirring events of April 2005, which began with the world keeping vigil at the deathbed of John Paul II, concluding with the election of his successor, Benedict XVI, on April 19th, a period of three weeks in which the Catholic Church what it stands for, what it proposes to the world, was really at the center of the world's attention. I was privileged to be in Rome during that entire period, and I still cannot think back on that without some uh, emotion. Indeed, I was so moved that the week after the present Pope's installation, uh, I almost immolated myself. A friend of mine, Father Tom Williams, whom those of you who had the good sense to watch NBC during these events, was my partner uh, on the coverage of the funeral and the election of Benedict XVI and his installation mass. Father Tom and I had decided to drive down to, to uh, Monte Cassino, where I hadn't been since I was a teenager, uh, to visit the monastery to say a prayer for the new Benedict at the tomb of St. Benedict. We got there, Father Williams disappeared into one part of the basilica to say his midday office. I went down to the tomb of Benedict in Scholastica under the high altar where there were, if I may say, some rather obnoxious Italian teenagers making a large amount of noise. This didn't seem to be the place to pray, so I went back upstairs and behind uh, the high altar uh, is another shrine to Benedictine Scholastica right over the tombs. And there was a beautiful prayer to them in Italian on the floor. And I was bent over saying this prayer when I heard something drop. And then I smelled a very bad odor. I have a very bad sense of smell, so when I smell something... Something really smells. I looked down, I had a shirt exactly like this on, and my shirt is on fire. <laughs> the pocket has been burnt off, my cell phone has dropped to the marble floor, hence the noise, and I am in flames. <laughs> because there were, I was so moved that there, I didn't notice these oil-fired vigil lamps around the thing, and I had simply ignited myself. 
Now, the question of how you unimmolate yourself in the Basilica in Monte Cassino is not a question that had occurred to me before. <laughs> Fortunately, I had my bravery with me, and it had a nice leather cover on it, and now I know why they have those leather covers. Because they're very good for beating out flames without burning your bravery to a crisp. When Father Williams found me with my hand immersed in the baptismal font at Basilica some minutes later, and with a shirt hanging in rags, he had the good taste to say, I can see the headline in the Washington Post tomorrow, Papal Biographer Immolates Self. What did he know? <laughs> in any event, Conclave of 2005, as many of you know, was one of the three shortest conclaves in recent church history. It need not have been expected to have been that, because it was also the most complex electoral body in the more than thousand year history of choosing popes through the mechanism of a conclave of the College of Cardinals. There were 115 electors in April 2005. Only a bare majority of them, 58 to 57, were European. 40% were from the Third World. 30% were from the Western Hemisphere. Their range of Christian historical experience ran the gamut from a man very close to this college, Cardinal Christoph Schonborn of Vienna, who is the son of one of the most distinguished Catholic families in Europe, to Cardinal Francis Arenze of Nigeria, another friend of the college, who wasn't even baptized until he was 12 years old, who had the pleasure of baptizing his own parents, who embodies the new Christendom, as Philip Jenkins calls it, in a very powerful way, and just about everything in between. This was the most diverse electorate in a thousand years of conclaves, and yet it so quickly resolved itself on the election of its dean, Joseph Ratzinger, as, uh, as Pope, as Bishop of Rome. Why did that happen? Why was this conclave, which might have been expected precisely because of its complexity of composition, to last a fair amount of time. Why did it so quickly resolve itself? I think the answers to that tell us something about the character of Benedict XVI and this historical moment in the life of the Church. So let me begin with that before talking a bit about some of the challenges facing uh, this pope and our church at this time, and then some thoughts on some of the principal themes that have emerged in the pontificate today. First of all, then, what happened two years ago? Let me suggest that three things happened. The first is that the rapid election of John Paul II's closest intellectual associate, which Cardinal Ratzinger had been for more than 22 years, seemed to me to signal a resounding affirmation 
of the pontificate of John Paul the Great and his accomplishments. Which is to say that the view that was still shared in some parts of the permanent bureaucracy of the church in Rome, among the men I called in witness to hope, the traditional managers of popes, the view in those quarters that John Paul II had been a kind of interesting Slavic interregnum, bracing, exciting, but something cast up by a distinctive moment in history, and when this time had passed, the right order of the universe, which is to say the Italian order of the universe, <laughs> would be restored. That view was not shared by these 115 cardinal electors, who in so quickly electing a man who had been at the center of the pontificate of John Paul II, were indicating that they saw in those 26 and a half years, not an interregnum, but a kind of model of the Petrine office as imagined by the Second Vatican Council. So that's the first thing that, that this meant. This was, in a sense, putting the seal of approval in a rather definitive way on the evangelical model of the papacy, as I called it in Witness to Hope, that had been so magnificently embodied by John Paul the Great. The second thing the rapid election of Cardinal Ratzinger meant, quite obviously, was a ringing endorsement of him, a man who had abandoned his own great intellectual plans to put his gifts at the service of John Paul II. Three times during the 22 and a half years of Cardinal Ratzinger's service as prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, he had asked the Pope to be allowed to retire, to return home to Bavaria, to pick up the threads of his intellectual work for whatever time uh, God was prepared to give him. And three times, the man whom many of us believe as the most consequential Pope of the second half of the second millennium, said to Joseph Ratzinger, I can't do this without you. Or at least I prefer not to do this without you. Please stay. And three times, Cardinal Ratzinger agreed to that request. What did the cardinal electors know about him except that rather dramatic fact of his uh, humble submission to the will of John Paul II. The first thing they knew him for uh, was a man of genuine holiness and on April 9th, 2005, at the funeral of John Paul II, they discovered that this holy man had a quite striking capacity to call others to holiness as well. Imagine yourself in the shoes of Joseph Ratzinger on the early morning of April 9th, 2005, knowing that you are about to be asked to lead two billion people in prayer. It's a rather daunting assignment. And yet, without a lot of bells and whistles, with the integrity of his own faith, with an absolutely marvelous homily, an 
exercise of the homiletic arts of the finest sort. It combined doctrine, piety, and comfort in equal measures. Joseph Ratzinger did exactly that. He led about one-third of humanity, that huge mob present in Rome, and the two billion people who watched the services on television, in an experience of prayer. He could do this publicly. And that was important for the electors to know, because despite all of the silliness that's written in the mainstream media about the political dynamics of papal elections, for the overwhelming majority of these cardinal electors, uh, this is an awesome responsibility in the exercise of which the threshold question applied to any possible candidate for the papacy is, is this a man of God? Is this a man of God who can lead others to an experience of God? And that's the first and most important thing his brother cardinals knew about Benedict XVI, that he was un uomo di Dio. The second thing they knew is what those of us, and I'm sure there are many in this room who fit within this category, those of us who have read him for so many decades knew him to be a man of extraordinary intelligence, uh, a living encyclopedia of theology, a man with a masterful uh, command of the history of Catholic thought, Protestant thought, Jewish theology, world religions, contemporary philosophy, uh, but moreover a man with a quite luminous capacity to take all of that learning and put it into terms that are accessible to people who don't have the kind of education you get in Christendom College or specialized training in philosophy and theology. This is a master catechist as well as a master theologian. I have known the present pope since 1988. He was extraordinarily helpful to me as I was preparing witness to hope. And when people would ask me, what's he like? I would say he's the only man I have ever met who, when you ask him a question, pauses thinks, and then answers in complete paragraphs <laughs> in his fourth language. <laughs> the first time I had an experience of this, I thought, maybe I'm getting a little gaga. But when I was transcribing the tapes that night, it comes out in paragraphs. He really does have a very, very orderly mind, and I think that's what gives him this capacity to teach, preach, and explain, as well as to, uh, as well as to write books of great uh, learning and depth. The third thing these cardinal electors knew about the dean of their college uh, was something that a lot of the world didn't know. They knew him to be a man of great decency, humility, and respect for others. African and Latin American cardinal electors told me in the week between the funeral of John Paul II and the um, 
closing of the conclave, the immurement of the cardinals for the election, that of all of the senior members of the Roman Curia with whom they had to deal, it was Cardinal Ratzinger who was most open to their point of view, who wanted to hear what they had to say, to learn from their experience before telling them what he thought they needed to hear about his work and his expectations. This is sometimes a rare thing. There is still an unfortunate sense in at least some parts of the Roman bureaucracy uh, by which people from the colonies, um, which includes us, by the way, not just the third world, are sometimes treated as if they needed instruction as to which fork to use first at dinner. Uh, Ratzinger was, by all accounts, never like that with these cardinals from the third world. And it is, uh, I think, no secret that they formed these cardinals from the new churches, from the growing end of the Catholic world demographically, who formed uh, a large part of the coalition that elected him so rapidly. And the fact that these men were willing to go with their experience of the shy, scholarly, polite, gentlemanly, uh, open, decent Ratzinger, rather than the media script that had been written outside the conflict about God's Rottweiler, about the Panzer Cardinal, the, the, the day before the conclave opened, uh, the Times of London was fishing all over Rome for stories about Joseph Ratzinger Hitler Youth. Which is not a pleasant game sometimes. Um, the Cardinals were prepared to ignore that media script and elect a pope based on their experience of someone and their understanding of what was good for the church. Now, that's important. There are very few institutions, as there are very few political leaders, who are simply prepared to ignore the external media script and tell you what they really think or what they believe to be the truth of the situation. The cardinals of the Catholic Church were quite prepared to do that two years ago. And I think that is that the church has communications issues but in this case, I don't think that was a matter of not being aware of what was out there. I think it was a matter of just not caring what was out there. And that bespeaks a kind of mature self-confidence in a church that has come through a difficult 40-year period that bodes well, I think, for the future. And the third thing that the rapid election of Joseph Ratzinger, chairman of the commission that prepared the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a symbol of Catholic orthodoxy, uh, the embodiment of the council rightly understood, uh, the council in line with the great tradition of the church, the rapid election of that man who symbolized, embodied, incarnated, all of that. I think can be read as a clear signal that the 40-year-long effort to compel the Catholic Church to do what virtually every other non-fundamentalist Christian community has done since the Second World War, 
namely bend its doctrine and its moral teaching to the demands of a modern world which misunderstands freedom as license, that effort is over. It will continue, obviously, from outside the church and inside the church, but the war has been won. And those who continue to throw grenades uh, in, in an attempt to get the Catholic Church to become, in essence, another liberal Protestant denomination, will, as the decades unfold, I think, come to resemble nothing so much as those unfortunate Japanese soldiers sometimes found on remote Pacific islands in about 1975, who somehow never got the word that the emperor had uh, packed it in 30 years before. I mean, that's what, that's, that's the future of what I called in the courage to be Catholic, Catholic light. It's getting stuck on little remote islands and not figuring out that the story has moved on. Now, I said that at Holy Cross last week, too. I want you to know, I don't only say that in Christendom. No, they didn't. But it didn't really make any difference because all the Jesuits had boycotted because of my column on Bob Dryden. Um, it's too bad. Um, challenges for this pontificate. One of the further reasons, I think, for a rapid resolution of the conclave in favor of this world-class intellectual from the center of European culture was the deep concern within the College of Cardinals that despite 26 and a half years of heroic effort by John Paul II, church was in fact in worse shape in its historic heartland in Europe in 2005 than it had been in 1978, and it wasn't in particularly great shape in 1978. The Cardinals, I think, realized as wiser analysts of the European problem today do that the wasting disease of Christianity in Christianity's historic heartland has led to a wasting disease of the human spirit throughout Europe with profound real-world consequences, of which the most dramatic is, of course, the demographic situation, which is little short of an act of civilizational suicide on the part of European countries today. Not a single member state of the European Union has a replacement level birth rate uh, in 2007. Some of them are depopulating at rates that are simply astonishing. Germany is expected to lose the equivalent of the entire old East Germany in population between now and 2050, uh, by which time all of you will be making alumni gifts to Christopher College, I'm sure. Um, Spain, during that same 43-year period, is projected to lose one quarter of its population. And perhaps most astonishingly enough, to those of us who still think of the large Italian family as a kind of staple image within the orbit of Western civilization, 
by 2050 on current demographic patterns, by 2050, 60% of Italians will not know from personal experience what a brother, a sister, an aunt, an uncle, or a cousin is. This will simply be abstract notions. Um, people won't have had brothers or sisters or aunts or uncles or cousins for so long, you really won't know what those human relationships are. Now, there are many reasons, obviously, for this kind of a dramatic uh, historical development. There are economic reasons, sociological reasons, ideological reasons, psychological reasons, political reasons. Uh, but when an entire continent healthier, wealthier, more secure than ever before, fails to create the human future in the most elemental sense of creating the human future, creating new generations, then I think we have to look to the realm of the human spirit for the deeper answer to the malaise. Europe is in a crisis of civilizational morale today because Europe is in a condition of profound spiritual boredom or as my friend David Hart would prefer to put it, metaphysical boredom. A kind of boredom with the very mystery and passion of life that leads to a kind of solipsism which leads to this uh, dramatic decline in fertility. Cardinals, knowing all this, knowing that this is, in some sense, a problem in the order of ideas, in the order of culture, uh, chose a man who came from the very heart of contemporary Europe and its triumphs and tragedies uh, in perhaps uh, what they regarded as a last shot at turning this around. Uh, because the demographic vacuum in Europe, as you know, is not remaining a vacuum. That demographic vacuum is being filled by immigrants from a different civilizational orbit with a very different view of the future of Europe, uh, a view that has not been seen in Europe since the 17th century, namely Europe as an extension of the Arab Islamic world. Uh, all of this was surely on the minds of the cardinals in choosing Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, who has proceeded to attempt to do some things about this. Uh, the World Youth Day in Cologne, the visit to Poland and the urging of Poland to take a more assertive role in shaping the future of Europe, the uh, papal visit to Germany last September, about which I'll say some more in a moment, uh, a largely unremarked in the U.S. visit to Spain last November, which nonetheless uh, put real spine into the Spanish bishops, who some weeks later issued a quite remarkable national pastoral letter on the moral cultural foundations of a free society, a letter that I don't think would have been issued without that prod from, um, from Benedict XVI. The clock is running, though. The clock is uh, running. And whether this pope, uh, with the aid of renewal movements, new Catholic communities, uh, of various sorts, a kind of great awakening, we would call it in American historical terms, can turn this around, uh, frankly, remains to be seen. Uh, it's interesting that Ratzinger, the theologian, has for some 20 years been developing the idea that the first enculturation of the gospel 
in the world of Greco-Roman antiquity was not an accident, but was in fact a providential part of salvation history. Not revelation in the technical sense that we mean uh, that term, but it was not an accident, Ratzinger has been arguing, that to put it very simply, Peter and Paul turned left coming out of the Holy Land rather than turning right. It was not an accident. Why? Because in turning left, in bringing that Easter confession of the church, Jesus is Lord, into the world of uh, classical antiquity, they brought that confession into a world where there were philosophical resources present that over a period of several hundred years could help turn that confession, that simple Easter confession of the Lordship of Christ, into the creed we recite every Sunday, into doctrine of the sort we see at Nicaea and Ephesus and Chalcedon. That would not have been possible without the first enculturation in a world that had the instruments, particularly the philosophical instruments, like the principle of non-contradiction, available to help you do that. Suppose Peter and Paul had turned right. Suppose, like the tradition has it with the Apostle Thomas, that everybody had ended up in India. India had a very flourishing civilization at that point, but it didn't have the principle of non-contradiction. It didn't have the idea that something cannot be and not be at the same time. That's not an environment in which you can say Jesus is Lord and see that translated into creed, doctrine, and dogma. Because Jesus can be Lord and not Lord at the same time. Or Jesus can be Lord and Buddha can be Lord. It made a difference that the first enculturation was in Europe. And if that is true, then it cannot be good for the future of the church, if those roots are uh, die, if those roots are to die. Now, it's true that that conceptual world has been transplanted. It's been transplanted here. It's been transplanted in other parts of the, to other parts of the world as well. Some of us would argue that it's been improved in the transplantation. But however we understand that it surely would not be a good thing for this continent of the first enculturation to be lost for some substantial period of time to uh, the Christian community around the world. And in an attempt to do something about that, an attempt to do something about that was, I'm quite convinced, one of the reasons why the Cardinals turned to uh, Joseph Ratzinger, and it's one of the reasons that explains, I think, some of the strategic priorities of Benedict XVI. The second is closely related to it, and that is the question of a strategic interreligious dialogue with, uh, with Islam. Uh, you remember the enormous fuss uh, last September when the Pope went to Regensburg, to his old university, and gave a lecture on faith and reason in which he quoted a rather brisk exchange between a medieval Byzantine emperor and a learned Persian doctor. This, predictably enough, set off something of a fuss in the uh, Islamic world. It set off a media fuss that continues to this day. 
Both of those fusses missed the point entirely. Uh, the Regensburg Address was aimed at least as much at the West as at Islam. It is true that in discussing certain currents of thought in the Islamic world, and particularly their deficient understanding of God as pure will, and therefore a God who can command the irrational, like the murder of innocents. It is true that in identifying that, Benedict XVI was saying, the world has a real problem with irrational faith, with faith detached from reason. But that was only 40% of the lecture. The other 60% of the lecture was the other side of the coin. Namely, what happens to the human project when we lose our faith in reason, when we cease to believe that we can know the truth of anything with certainty. That, the Pope said, is a very dangerous circumstance, for if we don't believe that we can know the truth of anything with certainty, how are we to defend the superiority of persuasion to coercion in politics? How are we to defend the right of religious freedom of all? How are we to defend the rule of law over the rule of raw force, etc., etc. These two sides of the problem of faith and reason, the Pope went on to say to the Roman Curia in his Christmas address of this past December, ought to form the focal point of a new strategic interreligious dialogue with Islam. In December, in talking to the senior officials of his central bureaucracy, the Pope said the point of interreligious dialogue with Islam in this moment in history should be to help Muslims who wish to do so to assimilate the positive institutional achievements of the Enlightenment, including, he said, the notion of religious freedom and the separation of religious authority from political authority. That's a very ambitious agenda, but it's an agenda with obvious implications for the future of the world. For if some part of the Islamic world is not able to internalize using its own religious warrants a notion of religious tolerance, uh, an idea of the separation of spiritual and political authority, then the future uh, is going to appear increasingly uh, not unlike what's on the front of your um, gym, gymnasium. We are going to be back in a situation of real confrontation between two different understandings of the rightly ordered society two very different understandings of the human future. Those are two large challenges in front of the Pope that somewhat bear on things, if you will, odd extra. Let me say a couple of words here about challenges odd intra, uh, challenges within the church. One of these will come into focus very quickly in two weeks when the Holy Father goes to Latin America, goes to Brazil 
to open the fifth general conference of Salem, the conference of Latin American bishops conferences. Those of you who've studied modern church history know that these Salem shindigs tend towards the rambunctious. 1968, the second Salem conference at Medellin, Colombia, launched the liberation theology movement and Sandinista priests and all of that sort of business. 1979, the third Salem conference at Puebla in Mexico, uh, dominated by the figure of John Paul II, critiquing those theologians who presented the figure of Jesus, as John Paul put it, as a subversive man from Nazareth. 92, Salem Conference in Santo Domingo was a quieter affair, perhaps being in the Dominican Republic. They were all out looking for second baseman and shortstops. But um, this fifth Salem Conference in, uh, in Brazil uh, seems likely to be another uh, moment of rambunctiousness. Uh, what might the Pope do there? Uh, I would suggest three things would be very useful to be done there, uh, several of which I'm reasonably confident he will do. Uh, the first is to challenge Latin America to stop acquiescing in its own marginalization by blaming all of its ills including the success of evangelical Protestantism on other external forces. Latin America, after 500 years, needs to become the protagonist of its own history, the subject of its own history, not to think of itself as the object of history created elsewhere. Uh, one of the reasons why uh, this cornucopia of natural and human resources has not had the kind of enormous civilizational impact that it ought to have had over the past five centuries is, I believe, this sense that we're not in charge of our own circumstances. That's a self-marginalizing intuition that I think needs to be challenged, and I hope the Holy Father does that. Secondly, I, I believe he needs to challenge Latin American churchmen to recognize that the success of evangelical and particularly Pentecostalist Protestantism in Latin America is at least in part uh, our fault. It's the fault of the pastoral and catechetical failures of the Catholic Church and until we recognize that uh, we're not going to be able to uh, do much about it. And third, uh, and I'm, I'm confident of this because I'm, I'm told by uh, several Latin American bishops that, that they believe that this is the case. Third, uh, the church needs to recognize that the real enemy in the 21st century in Latin America is not uh, evangelical and Pentecostalist Protestantism, but secularism. As one uh, Latin American churchman said to me last week, if anyone had said to us in 1992 at Santo Domingo, at the previous Salem meeting, that there would be gay marriage in Buenos Aires and in one state of Mexico, we would have had him, you know, strapped up and taken away where he couldn't do any damage to himself. Yet that is exactly what has happened uh, a mere 13 years, 15 years later. And it's motored by forces of secularism against which evangelical and Pentecostalist Protestantism is an ally, not an enemy. Is an ally, not an enemy. 
So in defending the moral cultural foundations of free societies in Latin America, the church needs to look to uh, its evangelical and Protestant, evangelical and Pentecostalist brothers and sisters in Christ uh, for common work, much as we have done here in the United States uh, in the pro-life movement. Another internal issue uh, of great interest, I think, to many here uh, in the life of the church, but an issue which has a great deal of bearing on how the church comports itself in the world is, of course, the question of the reform of the reform of the church's liturgy. Joseph Ratzinger was a leader of those forces who understood themselves as the reform of the reform for the better part of 30 years. I think from the critique of the way in which the liturgical mandates of the Second Vatican Council were carried out that he mounted during that 30-year period, we can draw some conclusions of likely possibilities in this pontificate. First, uh, it is important to recognize that by his own testimony, Joseph Ratzinger is very much a product of the liturgical movement as it expressed itself in Central Europe in the mid-decades of the 20th century. All of his autobiographical writing goes back time and time again. Now, how his piety was formed by uh, the liturgical movement of that period. So he is not a man who uh, believes in freezing the liturgy in amber at some point in time. What he objected to, of course, was what he perceived as not an organic development of the church's worship, but a kind of instantaneous jerking around of of the direction of the church's worship 90 or 180 degrees. Now, if you believe that that is what happened, you are not likely to try to repair things by jerking them around 90 or 100 degrees all over again. Rather, you are going to do certain things like make the uh, 1962 missile more available for uh, use throughout the church so that that experience of the liturgy serves as a magnet to draw the reform of the reform in a more classically Roman liturgical direction. You're not going to turn everything around on a dime, but you're going to set in motion processes that will that will attract the reform of the reform in a certain uh, direction. I would hope that he will, and I think he will, accelerate the process of giving us better liturgical translations. I think that's already underway, as is the kind of modeling of a more dignified form of liturgical music um, that uh, that he has already uh, demonstrated in his his, uh, papal liturgies. Uh, Yesterday, in my parish, the pastor, who was a wonderful man, I should add, uh, the communion, we, we generally have quite good music in my parish, but the, the litnik who runs this stuff cannot resist putting a little something contemporary in, usually as the congregational communion hymn. And of course yesterday being John 21, the gospel reading, it was one of these half English, half Spanish ditties, Lord, I was there by the seashore, Off, just off. 
pastor said at the end of Mass, you know, I was learning Spanish in Bolivia once, uh, 15 years ago, and we were singing that in church as uh, these revolutionaries were shooting people down out in the street, and indeed on the steps of the church. I went up to him after this and Monsignor, if you sing Palestrina inside the church, the revolutionaries leave you alone. That's the message of that episode. I think we'll see again a modeling, a drawing on, a magnetization of a different form of music. I would also hope, and here's something the Pope can do, I think quickly and on his own authority, is the reform of this degradation of the liturgical calendar to which we've been subjected with such biblical and liturgical absurdities as Ascension Thursday, Sunday. And uh, a year this year with... A year this year with absolutely no Epiphany season at all. I mean, we went from Epiphany to Bonini time in 24 hours. This is a shock to the system, to the spiritual system. That can be dealt with uh, rather easily. As my, as my son, who's perhaps not the best catechized of our kids, but does have some sense, said, Dad, are we going to have Ash Wednesday, Sunday soon? I mean, this is, this is really, this, is, this, can be, this can be dealt with fairly uh, readily. All of which, uh, I think, and let me end on this note, and then we can we can talk a bit before we go over to the hall. Um, all of all of which suggests to me that among these many other things, this pontificate is likely to be uh, it will be a eucharistically centered pontificate, calling us to be a more eucharistically centered church. Many of you have been to World Youth Days, I'm sure, and perhaps like me, you've reflected on the fact that each World Youth Day somehow seems to throw up, cast up an image of itself. Paris in 97, that Cathedral of Light at the Longchamp race course for the baptismal liturgy on, on Saturday at night. Toronto, 2002, an extraordinary procession up University Avenue, 500,000 people making the way of the cross on a Friday night and utterly stunning the denizens of this securely and smugly secular city. Uh, Manila, 95, John Paul II, first time he used the cane in public, twirling that cane on the stage. Um, what was the image from Cologne? It wasn't anything like any of those three I previously mentioned. The great image from Cologne was of the Pope in silent prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, inviting those half a million kids at the field behind him into that act of Eucharistic adoration with him. That's, in a sense, a visible, it's a meta visual metaphor for this entire pontificate, which is calling us back time and time again to the reality of the centrality of the Eucharist in our lives. Here is where we meet Christ. Here is where we see his face 
and on his face we see both truth of our own humanity and the face of the merciful Father. That's the great gift of the Eucharist to the Church, and that is a theme to which I am confident Pope Benedict XVI, this new Benedict in a season of multiple dark ages, will constantly call us back to and forward from uh, in the years that God uh, gives him. Thank you. CIA class, so this was not a protest move. I think Dr. O'Donnell said we had time for a few public questions. I don't know whether there's a private scrutinium after this during the reception, but uh, I'd be happy to take any questions. Yes, gentlemen here. extraordinary Catholic intellectual renaissance that took place in Central Europe, in uh, Germany, Austria, uh, parts of France, uh, parts of Poland, and elsewhere in the, in the mid-20th century. Uh, those of you who plan to study theology as a professional discipline uh, or the history of ideas might well want to look at that period as something that is very poorly understood in the U.S., but which produced a remarkable generation of uh, scholars and pastors, of which these two men are two products. They are the products of this great intellectual, liturgical, spiritual ferment of Middle Europa in the middle of the 20th century. That being said, uh, they have very different intellectual sensibilities. Um, uh, Joseph Ratzinger made, makes no bones in his uh, uh, memoirs about his dislike of the form of scholasticism uh, in which he was educated uh, as a seminarian, and I think he never really, in a sense, got over that. Uh, he was the first non-Thomist ever to be made the prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Uh, Wojtyla was, of course, influenced by phenomenology, but his core philosophical instincts were Aristotelian to mystic. Uh, so there's a difference there. Uh, I think Ratzinger is, is much more, uh, was much more, is much more ri widely read in Augustine and in the other fathers of the church 
than Wojtyla, who was no slouch in these matters, but had not had the opportunity to put the years of study into this that Ratzinger did. Wojtyla's um, mind, um, another story from the, from the dinner table on the Terzologium. Uh, I had spent some time reading philosophical essays of, of Carol Wojtyla, and this must have been early 97. Uh, we sat down to dinner, and he said, uh, you know, what are you learning about me now? And I said, I've had a very difficult time with some of your philosophical essays, and I shouldn't because I have some training in the discipline. I couldn't figure out why uh, I was having such a hard time uh, figuring out what you were trying to say. And then I took two Grissini, those little Italian breadsticks, off the table, and I said, I finally figured it out. Uh, I said, most, most uh, philosophers making an argument will st state a premise, make an argument, and end up at a conclusion. It's a straight line. I said, your mind doesn't work that way. I put down one of the Grissinos, and I said, you see a problem, and you start walking around it and describe it. When you get back to the beginning, you're not really at the beginning, you're sort of you know, one further level deeper. So you start walking around again. And if you're not really paying attention, it sounds like you're saying the whole damn thing all over again. <laughs> Although you are. I mean, it's at a deep, it's, at this, it's, at, it's at like a spiral staircase. You get this huge grin on your That's very different. And it's why Benedict XVI is a much easier read than John Paul II. I mean, if you read the popes, the present popes, homilies, uh, uh, as you read this new book of his, which I've had the uh, pleasure of, of reading a couple of weeks ago, um, he's got a very linear mind. It's that think in paragraphs thing I was talking about before, and that makes him a bit easier to digest. I mean, in that sense, he's not as exciting in one sense of intellectual excitement as Wojtyla, but he's exciting in a different way. It's the excitement of, for a generation like ours, which generation of the church really has lost touch with its patristic roots. It's the excitement of the rediscovery of that uh, remarkable intellectual heritage. Uh, in this new book, Jesus of Nazareth, he he goes in, in some detail into both his respect for the accomplishments of modern historical critical scholarship, uh, and yet says, after several pages of that, I trust the Gospels. I trust the Gospels. So the two, he believes, can be put together in some fashion if you are careful with how you use the historical critical method and don't believe that the dissection of texts, but rather the understanding of texts, is the object of the exegetical exercise. Um, that's, that's an exciting and interesting thing. I now have to turn my cell phone off. Excuse me. Um, it was a reporter in Baltimore that can always wait. Um, 
they were giving me the score. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> only in the second inning. We can't be too far. I think those are some of the those are some of the the distinctions that, that I would make there. Yes, over here from the faculty bleachers. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I, I, I think when the Pope says, as I indicated a moment ago, that he thinks this, the strategic goal of this interreligious dialogue should be to help Islam assimilate some of the positive institutional accomplishments of the Enlightenment, what is not being said, but what is also being said, is we're really not going to get too far on a lot of other questions. Uh, this is presented often as a dramatic reversal from John Paul II. Oh, stop it. I thought I had turned this thing off. Excuse me. Hello? Hi. Hi, Paul. I'm in the middle of a lecture. Can I give you a call back? Great, thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Now... Two pagan zero. I don't know. Um, this is presented as a dramatic reversal from um, John Paul II, but in fact it isn't. If you read or reread Crossing the Threshold of Hope, which with memory and identity and the two little autobiographical memoirs. Uh, Gift and Mystery and um, Rise, Let Us Be On Our Way. That, that's, that's the voice of Wojtyla, as clear as you're going to get it, given the, the overlay of the papacy. In Crossing the Threshold of Hope, he ends the section on Islam by expressing respect for Muslim religiosity, but noting that um, the the God of the Quran is not a God of redemption. And then he says at the end of this section, and so the theology and anthropology of Islam are very distant from us. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be uh, common understandings reached in the order of practical reason. Uh, which I think is exactly what Benedict XVI is looking for. It does suggest to me, and I'm going to lay this out in a small book called Faith, Reason, and the War Against Jihadism that I'm publishing with Doubleday in November. Um, I'm not moving to the International Space Station shortly after that. suggest that certain tropes with which we have become familiar, 
three Abrahamic faiths, for example, are more obfuscatory than illuminating. They really do create the misimpression of equilateral relationships within this triad that no Christian or Jew can conceive. Christianity has a relationship to Judaism and in its own way Judaism to Christianity that is simply not replicable with this uh, new faith which claims to supersede and correct both of its predecessors. From a theological point of view, when we talk of the image of Abrahamic faith for a Christian is not simply historical, it's teleological. Abraham points to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, which we believe to have been uh, embodied in the incarnate Son of God and nothing beyond that. So to call Islam Abrahamic is to, is, to, is to eliminate that whole teleological, soteriological dimension of the notion of Abrahamic, as we understand it, and as Jews So I think, you know, the dynamics of history and the um, contestations of the past six years and more have compelled a re-examination of some of this. Um, and I think this Pope will quietly push that forward while um, making clear that there are some non-negotiable bottom lines here of which the freedom of the church uh, and the freedom of Christians to practice their faith in Islamic lands is certainly one. Yeah. Maybe one more? Somebody over here. Yeah, all the way in the back. tells you they know um, is blowing smoke. Uh, I think what I said about the 1962 missile uh, being the subject of this reported motu proprio, um, I assume, I mean my hunch is that what will be done is an encouragement to bishops, a rather vigorous encouragement to bishops to be generous in their granting of an indult for the use of this missile, including the celebration of the Mass in, in Latin, uh, where that is pastorally uh, appropriate and useful. Uh, I have a very clear picture of the Latin Mass of the late 1950s in my head which I dare say 80% of this room doesn't because you weren't there at the time. Um, you must get this mythical, beautiful, always perfectly celebrated uh, image
language out of your head. It was often execrable Latin. The music was as bad as today. I keep a copy of something called the St. Gregory Hymnal in my library, which Mrs. Bethel remembers. It's not quite as bad as, Lord, you were there by the seashore. But it's, you know, it's pointed in that direction. Um, the task is to render to God the worship that God is due in the conviction that the liturgy, the work in the Greek term, that we do here and now is our privileged participation in the liturgy of angels and saints that goes on constantly around the throne of grace. That's the biggest turn we need to make, I think, is a turn in how we understand what it is that we're doing. If we really believe that every time we gather for the celebration of the Eucharist, we were in this kind of window to the divine liturgy, a lot of the practical problems, I think, would resolve themselves in fairly short order. Um, and I think that, when I talk about the 62 Missal and the wider use of that being a magnet drawing the reform of the reform in a, in a more classically Roman liturgical direction, I think that's what uh, the Pope is, is up to. And in that sense, he should want to make that, that magnet as widely available as possible. Uh, some of you may remember a column I wrote several months ago in which um, uh, I'm talking about the book by Father Lang of the Brompton Oratory, Turning Toward the Lord. Uh, I made the argument for a return to everyone facing in the same direction during the Eucharistic part of the liturgy. We maintain the present arrangement uh, for the liturgy of the word, and then everyone would face the same way for the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is to say to face the eschatological Lord, the coming Lord, the risen Lord. Uh, this is not a matter of turn, the priest turning his back on the people. It's a question of all of us turning towards Christ. Uh, I expected to get an enormous amount of flack for that column, um, and I didn't. So I think, you know, I think there's a sense that we need to, you know, to move in a direction of a more um, uh, formal, if you will, but formal in the sense of dignified uh, celebration of the Mass. And I think that's happening anyway. I think that's happening anyway. So that, that's what I would look for on that front. But I have absolutely no idea uh, what he is going to do in terms of so-called universal uh, indults, which would frankly have some uh, problems in terms of the relationship of, of priests to their bishops and vice versa. So we'll see. Anyway, thank you all very much. We'll see you over at the
For those who would like to uh, continue the discussion, there will be a gathering over at St. Killian's at the John Paul the Great Student Center immediately following. Now, as is our custom, let's turn our attention to the Blessed Mother and invoke her powerful intercession. Salve Regina, Mater